is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu, and their C.S. Lewis lecture is simply terrific. Watch it with your family and friends. The man we are featuring today on today's This Day in History segment has been described as the greatest reformer in history. Boy, that is no small tagline. When you hear this story, you will learn why. His legacy influenced the lives of kings and presidents and touched the poor and the downtrodden in nations throughout the world. Let's take a listen to this remarkable life story. 200 years ago, England was the world's greatest superpower. It was also the world's greatest slave trader. Ships by the hundreds sailed from Britain's shores for the coast of West Africa, where crews employed brutal methods, capturing and enslaving their human cargo for the fields and plantations of the New World. Not only was this practice highly profitable, it was national policy. Planners and traders leveraged their tremendous wealth and exercised astounding influence in Parliament. Few voices were brave enough to rise in protest. Anyone hoping to abolish the slave trade would need intelligence, grace, influential friends, the gift of oration, and most of all, faith. It would take years of tireless, thankless, and failed efforts to wake a nation's passion for freedom and justice. But 200 years ago, one man did indeed stand up against this evil and started a movement that would change the world. That man was William Wilberforce. Surely it is time for the fat fellow and his friends opposite to make way for others who consider the good of their country of greater moment than their own personal interest. Born in 1759 in the city of Hull, England, Wilberforce was small, sickly, and frail. His physical condition didn't improve much with adulthood. Later, the five-foot, two-inch Wilberforce would be described as all soul and no body. But he did develop a powerful intellect and had an uncommonly beautiful voice that was as charming as it was convincing. And one in four Americans are loyal. If he calls that half, I'd hate to be his wife and share half his bed. <laughs> he attended the University of Cambridge in 1776, where he met William Pitt, who would become his lifelong friend and, at 24 years of age, the youngest prime minister in British history. They worked together for years to help end the slave trade. And although Pitt was overwhelmed by the war against Napoleon's France. Wilberforce had in William Pitt no greater friend to ending the slave trade. At the age of 21, Wilberforce ran for election in the House of Commons and won. Wilberforce later confessed that his early political aim was not to serve others. Wilberforce wrote, The first years I was in Parliament, I did nothing, nothing that is to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. All that changed in 1785 when Wilberforce wrote William Pitt 
saying he was in the midst of a spiritual transformation, an ongoing process that he would later refer to as his great change. He gained a new humility and a genuine heart for the poor and suffering. He was full of joy and energy and grace. There was no harshness or judgment in him. Everyone in society angled to have him at their parties, though he usually declined. But most everyone saw the love of Christ in him, which is impossible to fake. You read my letter? The man who wrote that letter was not you. It was written by some wild preacher man that has gotten into your head. No. Wilberforce explained that he was praying for God to reveal his calling to him. God, you said you were going to ask God whether you should take up politics or religion. You're always too direct, Billy. I urgently need to know where your heart lies, Wilbur. What's urgent? Pitt urged him to remain in politics. I want you beside me, Wilbur, all the way. Shortly after this, Pitt set up a secret meeting between abolitionists and Wilberforce. These are for the legs. The abolitionist leader, Thomas Clarkson, detailed what it was to be a newly captured slave. This is for the neck. Works like so. Mr. Wilberforce, we understand you're having problems choosing whether to do the work of God or the work of a political activist. We humbly suggest that you can do both. And when we come back, more on the life of William Wilberforce. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is part of our This Day in History segments, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we left off 
Wilberforce just attended an abolitionist meeting with his friend, William Pitt. You planned this. I've seen the literature you've been reading. You've stooped to searching through my desk. Sir William Dolben told me you'd asked to be shown round the East India docks. So, you would use my private concerns for your own political ends? Yes, exactly that. Here's Pitt making another appeal to Wilberforce. Surely the principles of Christianity lead to action as well as meditation. Oh, excellent point. Allow me to meditate on it before I decide on any action. Just think about this, Wilbur. The slave trade has 300 MPs in its pocket. It would be just you against them. But you could do it. You would do it. And so he made the decision to visit an old family friend for advice. This friend was John Newton, a former white slave turned captain of his own slave ship. Newton was known for his profanity and violence until he too experienced the heart change because of his conversion. Newton was now a 60-year-old pastor who penned the most famous hymn in history. It's called Amazing Grace. Hello, Mr. Newton. It's me, William. Wilberforce walked to Charles Square in London where Newton lived, and he couldn't summon up the courage to knock on the door. He walked around the square once and twice and finally knocked on the door. So, what do you want with your old preacher? I'm here to seek your advice. Pitt has asked me to take them on. The slavers. I'm the last person you should come to for advice. I can't even say the name of any of my ships without being back on board them in my head. All I know is 20,000 slaves live with me in this little church. There's still blood on my hands. Will you help me, John? I can't help you. But do it, Wilma. Do it. Take them on. Throw their dirty, filthy ships out of the water. The planters, sugar barons, Alderman Sugarcane, the Lord Mayor of London, Liverpool, Boston, Bristol, New York, all their streets running with blood, dysentery, puke. You won't come away from those streets clean, Wilbur. You'll get filthy with it, you'll dream it, see it in broad daylight, but do it. God's sake. Wilberforce returned to Parliament a changed man. He was ready for his mission. On October 28, 1787, Wilberforce penned these memorable lines in his diary. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. The word manners meaning the moral fiber of a nation which is to say a kind of social reform against rampant immorality and vice. You see, life in Wilberforce's day was brutal, decadent, violent, and vulgar. Societal evils were many and horrific. Epidemic alcoholism, child prostitution, 
child labor, frequent public executions for petty crimes, and unspeakable public cruelty to animals. All of these were far more visible than slavery. Wilberforce knew that if society was to be brought into line with the abolition of slavery and the commandments of God, it would need to begin with the reformation of manners. Knowing that success in the small things would eventually lead to success in greater things. Because of this, Wilberforce practically invented what we now know as social conscience. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a penny for a boy Later that year, Wilberforce brought a motion to the House of Commons for the abolition of the slave trade. It is with a heavy heart that I bring to the attention of this house a trade which degrades men to the level of brutes and insults the highest qualities of our common nature. I am speaking of the slave trade. It would be 20 long years, 20 years filled with frustration, duplicity, and disappointment before he would carry the House of Commons and the House of Lords in putting abolition into law. In fact, due to a severe illness from which he nearly died, it would take Wilberforce two years just to bring his first parliamentary speech against the slave trade. For three and a half hours, he detailed its brutal realities, presenting for many their first glimpse into slavery's gruesome practices. He also appealed to those whose livelihood depended on the riches of the slave trade. On one occasion, while taking an opulent sail down the harbor, Wilberforce appeared on the deck of a docked slave vessel, surprising the passing ship full of wealthy men and women with the realities of the slave trade. This trip wasn't purely arranged to reward those MPs who have supported me in the past year, nor am I the only sponsor. What's he doing up there? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a slave ship, the Madagascar. It has just returned from the Indies, where it delivered 200 men, women and children to Jamaica. When it left Africa, there were 600 on board. The rest died of disease or despair. That smell is the smell of death. Slow, painful death. Breathe it in. Breathe it deeply. Take those handkerchiefs away from your noses. There now. Remember that smell. Remember the Madagascar. Remember that God made men equal. Parliament responded with typical delay tactics. In the midst of the political chicanery, the great Methodist reformer and preacher to the American colonies, John Wesley, wrote Wilberforce a letter of encouragement and support. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? 
It was the last letter Wesley ever wrote. He died a week later. But his words proved true, as Wilberforce faithfully endured 13 more frustrating years of consecutive defeats presenting his bill to the House. And still, after all the badges, the petitions, all the speeches and the bills, ships full of human souls in chains sail around the world as cargo! Then, in 1806, maritime lawyer and abolitionist James Stephen, newly back from the Indies, shared this story with Wilberforce and his friends. On every island now there are rebellions. Haiti is in the hands of slaves, and slaves are anxious, they're impatient for their freedom. They hear about your work here. I, uh, I saw a woman and her child being beaten in a coffee field. And afterwards, I heard the woman tell her daughter that someone was coming across the sea to save them. She said it was King Wilberforce. So this time, gentlemen, we must not fail them. Stephen suggested a change in tactics. If we go to Parliament with this evidence, there'll be sympathy, there'll be concern, but it'll be just the same as every other time. Have you come back to preach hopelessness? No. No, I've, I've had an idea. In my law books, I, I think I might have stumbled across something, and I want to propose it as a strategy. Nosus decipia. It's Latin. Loosely translated, it means we cheat. And when we come back, the last installment of this remarkable story, the story of William Wilberforce, born on this day in history in 1759. with our American stories. And now it's time for our final installment of this remarkable life story of William Wilberforce. If you've never heard the name before and never heard the story, I am sure it's just killing you. But if you do know it, and I do, I'm learning quite a bit right here listening. Great job, as always, by Greg Hengler and the team. Let's return to the final part of the William Wilberforce story. Wilberforce and fellow abolitionist Thomas Clarkson mm. took their idea in secret to Prime Minister Pitt. Oh, for God's sakes, what is it? 80% of all slave ships sailing to the Indies are flying the neutral American flag to prevent them from being boarded by privateers. If we pass a law removing that protection, no shipowner will dare allow his vessel make the journey. This will only apply to French ships, not British. 
And that's the beauty of it. Once any ship raises the American flag, by law it is neither French nor British. So our slave ships will be just as liable to seizure as French ones. The privateers won't care whose booty they're taking as long as they're operating within the law. Without the protection of neutral flags, 80% of the British slave trade will be finished overnight. Dear God. Anti-French bill, which is also anti-slavery. Don't know why I didn't think of this any sooner. But they needed Pitt's help. Oh, but we can't let anyone know that we're behind this. We need you to instruct someone to put this bill forward who's seen as a patriot. We don't want any fuss. We just need someone really, really boring. Pitt obliged. My proposition is that all the ships flying the American flag be liable to search and seizure, but to put an end to this... But one of the slavery-supporting parliamentarians began to smell what the abolitionists were cooking. Mr. Speaker, I do believe the abolitionists are coming at us at a sidewind. Sidewind? What kind of sidewind? Uh, I'm not sure what kind of sidewind, I just know that there's something going on. He rushed out of the house and quickly tried to gather what was an unusually large number of missing votes. Many were straggling in the hallways, but most all of them were simply gone. Everybody's at the races in Epsom. They were given free tickets. I saved one for you, a free gift from William Wilberforce. Disguised as an anti-French bill, the Foreign Slave Trade Act quickly passed with the effect of eliminating two-thirds of the British slave trade. On the Home and Foreign Slave Trade Act, then, after hours of debate that lasted into the pre-dawn hours of February 24, 1807, the ruling on a resolution to end the slave trade in all of Britain was announced at four in the morning. Nose to the left, 16. Eyes to the right, 283. of the slave trade to be passed. It was a moment like, unlike any other in British history. The House of Commons rose as one man and applauded for several minutes on end Wilberforce. And he sat there with the tears streaming down his face. The historian G.M. Trevelyan has said, speaking of the abolition of the slave trade, that it was one of the turning events in the history of the world. When people speak of great men, they think of men like Napoleon, men of violence. Rarely do they think of peaceful men. But contrast the reception they'll receive when they return home from their battles. Napoleon will arrive in pomp and in power, a man who's achieved the very summit of earthly ambition. And yet his dreams will be haunted by the oppressions of war. William Wilberforce, however, will return to his family, lay his head on his pillow, 
And remember, the slave trade is no more. More than two decades after the Foreign Slave Trade Act was passed, on July 26, 1833, word from London was rushed to Wilberforce as he lay gravely ill. The House of Commons had cast the decisive vote of victory to outlaw all slavery throughout its empire. 800,000 slaves were freed. Three days later, William Wilberforce died and was buried in Westminster Abbey. Free blacks in New York City wrote a formal eulogy and had it delivered to England. Harriet Beecher Stowe praised Wilberforce in the pages of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Frederick Douglass invoked his memory in many speeches. Wilberforce's victory inspired and cajoled the rest of the European powers and America itself to do the same. Wilberforce speaks to us so powerfully because he is probably the best example we have of someone who carried his faith into the public square to write a great human rights abuse. And he is one of a, a great tradition that we're familiar with here in America. One thinks of Martin Luther King Jr. and his passionate pursuit of civil rights. Faith was the basis for Dr. King's pursuit of justice. The same is the case with Wilberforce. Like Dr. King, his faith was the source of first principles that inspired him on the fight to end first the slave trade and later slavery itself. In 1858, Lincoln noted that he had never allowed himself to forget that Wilberforce had led the fight against the slave trade in the British Empire. It's a fact, he said, that schoolboys know. Unfortunately, schoolboys and girls no longer know it. Perhaps he's become a victim of his own success, like a scientist who discovers the cure for an inoculation against a terrible disease. As the disease is eradicated and passes out of memory, so the scientist's name is likely to be forgotten. This is what seems to have happened to Wilberforce. What he accomplished, he accomplished so thoroughly and so successfully that we've completely taken it for granted. Wilberforce is the ultimate politician, perhaps the greatest politician who ever lived. He was as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. He accomplished more as a legislator than anyone could ever hope to accomplish, and he did it from being principled to the core. But at the end of the day, he played to a constituency of one. Wilberforce follows no leader but the preacher in his hand. And it needs to be said that he did it with the very greatest humility, not with any sort of moralistic or triumphalist arrogance. He believed that he was a sinner, saved by God's grace. That belief could be seen in how he lived and how he treated his political opponents, with a disarming and quite extraordinary graciousness. Today, a little more than 200 years after Parliament cast its historic vote to outlaw the slave trade, the mission and movement of Wilberforce continues. Today, people of courage and conviction are putting their faith into action, taking a stand for the weakest and most vulnerable, those who have no voice and need our help, following the footsteps of this hero of humanity, William Wilberforce. And that's our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. 
and you can find all of their work at hillsdale.edu. And just a final note on this Wilberforce story. We tend to think of slavery only in the context of modern history, perhaps coinciding with the beginning of slavery in our own country. The reality is that we do not even know when slavery began because its institution is older than recorded history. The significance of the abolition of the British slave trade is that it is the turning point of the worldwide movement to eradicate slavery. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of William Wilberforce, born on this day in history in 1759. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now and then, we love to throw to Jesse's favorite segment, and he brings us, well, he brings this to us when he feels like it. Let's take a listen. (laughs) Shower thoughts. People shouldn't be allowed to use the bathroom on an airplane for flights lasting under two hours. If you can't hold it for that long, too bad. I'm sorry your mommy didn't teach you any self-control. I'd like to think that money wouldn't change who I am, but when I'm winning Monopoly, I become a terrible person. If organized crime started printing high-quality counterfeit college textbooks and then sold them at cut-rate prices, it'd be a really good public relations move. If pigs could fly, I bet their wings would taste delicious. When boarding an airplane, first-class passengers are forced to sit at eye level with the coach passengers' crotches as they board. Airlines could solve this problem by letting first-class board last. Sometimes pets are better than children. They eat less, they don't ask for money, and if they get pregnant, you can just sell their babies. Dog food could say it's any flavor it wants to. You're not going to test it. When I was a small kid, my grandma used to show me love by playing along with my make-believe games. Now that she's older and has dementia, it's my turn to show love by playing along with hers. If you accuse someone of being argumentative, they can't disagree with you without proving your point. Why would anybody buy a bookmark for a dollar when they could use a dollar for a bookmark? According to most ghost photos, our clothes must have a soul too, otherwise all ghosts would be photographed naked. The kind of people who close the shade on an airplane window should be placed on the terrorist watch list and not be allowed to fly. These people are the last kind of soul-sucking vampires I would want to die with if, God forbid, the plane went down in flames over the sun-scorched desert. Shouldn't billboards be illegal since they distract you from the road? If you wash the dirt from a fallen ice cube, you're washing your water with water and hope that there's only water on the water that you will add to your water. Shower thoughts. (laughs) Well, thanks for that, Jesse, as always. And next, we're bringing you Melissa Fenton, who runs the website www.fourboysmother.com. As you might guess, Melissa is a wife and a mother of four boys and writes humorous and heartfelt essays about modern parenting and nostalgia. We've all heard about that tragic accident at Disney World, where two parents enjoying a vacation with their kids suddenly and violently had their world torn upside down when an alligator took their two-year-old boy 
in front of their very eyes. The father suffered numerous wounds as he fought a losing battle for his young, helpless son in the alligator's clutches. The mother even ran to help and also suffered wounds. Tragically, in the end, the young boy was not saved. And the day after the accident, Melissa Fenton penned a fantastic essay, Open Letter to Perfect Parents, Put Down Your Pitchforks, that went absolutely viral. And, well, she recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Melissa's poignant rant that rivals some of Hengler's very best rants. Parents, I beg of you, stop blaming and shaming other parents. 35 years ago, a mom shopping in a Sears department store went to go look at lamps and left her six-year-old with another group of boys who were all trying out the new Atari game at a kiosk. That boy's name was Adam Walsh. 30 years ago, an 18-month-old toddler playing in her aunt's backyard fell into a well. Rescuers worked nonstop for 58 hours, finally freeing baby Jessica from the well. In both cases, a tragedy happened. An unforeseen tragic accident took place which left Adam dead and a toddler fighting for her life deep underground. But they also had something else in common. They had an entire country of moms and dads supporting the grieving parents. Let me repeat that. Everyone supported the rescue efforts without blame. No blame. None. Zero. No questions asked. Not one single, where were their parents, comment. Just a country of other moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, watching in horror as a set of parents, one of their own, went through the unthinkable. Adam was everybody's son, and Jessica was everybody's daughter. Those parents were us. Flash forward to 2016, the year of the perfect parent. Yesterday, a two-year-old boy splashing in the magical lakefront waters of a Disney resort succumbed to the wilds of Mother Nature. An aggressive alligator scooped him out of the water right under the watch of his father, who attempted to fight with the alligator to free his baby son. Pure horror. Sheer terror. Parents who actually had to watch their baby be taken from them as if they were in some African nature documentary. A tragic and unforeseeable accident. An accident. I weep for this mother and father. I am sick with anguish for the pain, agony, misery, and regret, regret pulsing through their veins this very second. And I bet you are too. But not everyone is. You see, we now live in a time where accidents are not allowed to happen. You heard me. Accidents, of any form, in any way, and at any time, well, they just don't happen anymore. Why? Because blame and shame. Because we have become a nation of blamers and shamers. And how are accidents allowed to happen if we can't blame someone? Surely they can't, right? I mean, random acts of nature, unpreventable tragedies, and fateful life-changing events that take place in a matter of nanoseconds cannot possibly take place if everyone is being a responsible parent, right? Nope. They can't, because this country and its population of perfect pitchfork-carrying mothers and fathers sitting behind keyboards needs to accuse. They need to blame to disparage, to criticize in every damn way and at every damn corner the parenting of another. 
And when do they really get to lick their blaming chops? When a tragic accident happens. That's when the pouncing is at its freshest. When raw emotion and ignorance collide and they dig their word claws in and take hold of whatever grace these grieving mothers and fathers have left in their souls. And they tear it out. Listen to me very carefully, perfect parents. Very carefully. I've had enough. I've had enough of scrolling through comment threads and seeing over and over again questions like, where were the parents? And thoughts like, this is what happens when you don't watch your kids. I've simply had enough. I have one question for the blaming and shaming moms and dads. You know, the ones who immediately blame the parents. The ones who go on the internet and type comments like, this is nothing but neglect by the parents. And they should have known better. Who was watching that little boy? And my personal favorite, I would never let that happen to my kid. Here's my question. Have you ever been to a child's funeral before? Because I have. The funeral of a child is an event in life that you never, ever want to experience. Now let me ask you another question. In the coming week, these parents will fly back to their home in Nebraska without one of their children. They will leave a vacation resort packing up his Buzz Lightyear pajamas and his favorite blanket, and they will make an excruciatingly difficult journey home. A journey that they never in a million years thought they would be making. They will meet with the funeral director, pick out a tiny casket, a tiny burial suit, and surrounded by family, they will bury their baby boy, and they will suffer every single day for the rest of their life. At the funeral for this two-year-old boy who died in front of his parents, can you do me a favor? Can you walk up to that mother and say the words that you just typed out last week? Can you? Can you greet her, hug her, shake the father's hand, and then say, Who was watching that little boy? You should have known better. I would never let that happen to my child. Can you do that for me? I mean, you felt those words so deeply in your heart and soul that you typed them for a million people to read. Certainly, you can say it straight to the faces of the people you meant it for, right? Here, let me help you. Put away your pitchfork for a moment and try this. To the mother and father who went for a walk and vacation for the last time with their little boy yesterday, I am deeply sorry that you had to experience the worst kind of tragedy possible, an accident. I grieve with you. Your baby was my baby. Your son was my son. I have nothing but love for you. Love to help you get through the pain yesterday, today, and for what is going to seem like a thousand tomorrows. I wrap my thoughts and prayers around your aching heart and soul. May the God of this universe, in some miraculous way, bring peace to you and your family. That is what you say. That. And just that. Stop blaming. Stop shaming. In their darkest hours, can we please just love other parents? Please? And that was Melissa Fenton, author of An Open Letter to Perfect Parents. Put down your pitchforks. Couldn't agree more. That's why we ran it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to hear more of our content, more of our storytelling, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
Ali Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're going to talk today about the minimum wage. There's a lot of discussion. Is it good for the economy, bad for the economy? Will it lift workers' salaries up? What's the net impact of all this? And particularly for us, what's the impact on the creation of jobs? Because in the end, uh, we are net in favor of more job creation here on this show Uh, We're not a political organization here, as you can tell, we don't do politics, but periodically we do do economics, and we love to tell the story of business owners uh, because their stories are rarely told, and my goodness, the people who run businesses, they're the lifeblood of this economy. They're the ones who create the jobs. They're the ones who create everything. Without them, this is not a country, and so we came across an article in National Review about minimum wage, and joining us is Jamie Richardson, a vice president at White Castle. And for those of you not lucky enough to have a White Castle in your state, I grew up in New Jersey, and I couldn't live without them. And they're in your freezer aisle at most supermarkets in this country in all 50 states. And Jamie, thanks for joining us. And joining us also is Jahangir Kabir, a district supervisor at White Castle. Guys, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you. And hey, Lee, with that shout-out, you might be on the path of the Cravers Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's some enthusiasm uh, from a New Jersey day. So thank you. We appreciate it. Oh, there's nothing there's nothing like a White Castle, and especially when you're just – I like them at around – my favorite time for a White Castle, around 8 or 9 p.m. And I can, <laughs> I can down – in my prime, I could down 12 of them, um, which I'm very proud of. And folks, if you haven't had them, they're, they're small burgers – but they're delightful burgers. This is sounding like an advertisement, Jamie, so let's go on to the <laughs> <Yeah>. issue. <laughs> so I wanted to we start... It. Oh, you bet. I want to start, Jahangir, with you first. Uh, you know, a lot of folks that I know don't like calling these minimum wage jobs. They like calling them entry-level jobs. I want to talk about the importance of the entry-level job you had at White Castle in your life. Tell us, Jahangir, your story. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much to give me the opportunity to come up and uh, talk about my story. I, I greatly, greatly appreciate this, uh, Lee Habib. Uh, you know, I came in this country in 1990 from uh, Bangladesh. Uh, you know, it's, uh, Bangladesh is a very poor country, and I came in this country, first of all, I was in culture shock. I had no clue what was going on here. Uh, and second of all, the problem was I didn't speak any English. So, you know, I started looking at a job, nobody would hire me, you know, so it was a very, very bad situation in my life. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden I walked into a White Castle restaurant in Elmer's, Queens, New York. And I had this conversation with this gentleman named Eugene Miller, and I told, you know, I, I sort of communicated my, uh, uh, my situation with him with broken language, one word here, one word there, and luckily my sister-in-law was here with me. And she was able to help me express myself what my situation is. And Mr. Miller was very kind. He actually offered me a job on the spot. He said, hey, listen, you can come and join our team. You really don't need English to cook hamburgers. That's what my sister sister-in-law told me in my own language. Uh, you are more than welcome to join. And I was able to join that location. If White Castle was not there, I probably wouldn't be here today. And Jahangir... And Jahangir, yeah. so you started at that at job cooking hamburgers, and that was 1990. Where are you today? What has White Castle meant to you and that entry-level job meant to you? Well, let me tell you what happened. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a desire to learn and learn English. So once I learned really English good, uh, I was able to move up within the company. 
I became an instructor, I became a crew manager, I became a general manager. Right now, I'm a district manager running eight locations in New York City. About $14 million in business. I hope Jamie's okay. I'm giving out some numbers. <laughs> that's only, and that's the only number I'm giving out just about. I have about 250 employees works for me. You know, not only that, I think the most important part is that I had an opportunity work at White Castle. I, at the same time, attend school. So I'm very happy to report to your audience that I was able to finish my Doctor of Business Administration degree this February. So, so, so that's what White Castle means to an individual like me. That's what White Castle or restaurant industry means to someone like me. And that's my story. That's my experience. And thank you so much for making the opportunity available to speak about it. Well, Jahangir, these stories are really important. And for the life of me, I've always wondered why American business doesn't just get a channel and just pipe these stories out because they're true to the rest of the American people. And then we can have an honest gut discussion about minimum wage and all the implications of raising it to to $15. Jamie, tell us what Jahangir's story means for you as it relates to the minimum wage, because this is personal, isn't it? It's really personal, and we're so proud of Jahangir, and we're so proud to call him our, our colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Jahangir Kabir. Uh, you know, as a family-owned business that's been around for 95 years, we've been in the city of New York since 1930, and all along the way, one of the things we've been able to do is provide more opportunity for more people. And Jahangir's story to us is why we exist. It's not just about selling hot and tasty food that's fun and that's good and that's important. It's about the opportunity we provide to great people who get to have their dreams come true because they've joined us. And to us, that's why we exist. And so when we hear things uh, about uh, government officials thinking this is a good idea, on paper it might feel that way. The reality is when you foist that upon business and you try to come in with an edict that says it has to be at this level by this day, you prevent that business from being able to hire more people. So it's actually the antithesis of why we exist. It, It works against that. Well, hold on that with that thought. We're going to come back on the other side and dig into the actual policy implications. We're talking to Jamie Richardson, vice president of White Castle and a member of the Job Creators Network, and Jahangir Kabir, a district supervisor at White Castle. And this is an important discussion, folks, and you're going to get another side of this story that you might not get in other places. And again, we don't do politics here on Our American Stories. But my goodness, that immigrant story you just heard from Jahangir, there's millions of stories like that, folks, in this great country. More with Our American Stories after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The minimum wage, that's what we're talking about. But we're talking about it where the rubber hits the road. We're talking about it with a, a company called White Castle. If you live in the Northeast, you know what we're talking about. If you don't, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, but you can go to the supermarket and grab some White Castle burgers in the aisle. And later we'll give you some cooking instructions so you can know just what we're actually experiencing in places like New York and New Jersey. Alex? Don't forget about the Midwest, Lee. We had it here in Chicago. My grandma actually used to sneak White Castle burgers when we would go in the movie theater. <laughs> You're not allowed to bring in outside food, but we'd always bring in that White Castle. Well, that's uh, we'll get more into the details about the joys of White Castle. But we're here to talk about the minimum wage and for restaurants, for so many businesses in this country. And by the way, franchise businesses, too. And there are 20% of all American businesses are franchises. Um, this minimum wage issue is personal. So, Jamie, get into the nuts and bolts here for our audience. Well, you know, when I hear young people, particularly, I, we broadcast here from Oxford, Mississippi. There are lovely kids here, and they're all walking around talking about $15 and a fair wage. You know what I always say to them? Why not $50 as a minimum wage? Let's make it $50 an hour. And they, don't, they, they think I'm kidding, but I, I ask a serious question when I ask that. Talk about that $15 and what it means to you and how it could actually harm job creation, something you intimated earlier. Great questions. And first, let me share what we're for. We're absolutely in favor of providing more employment to more people at great wages. And we provide great benefits as a family-owned business. That's been part of our business model right from the very beginning, because we understand it's the dignity of each person. And our founder's philosophy was uh, happy employees make happy customers. So that's the heart and soul of who we are at White Castle. I mean, we provide a great wage, but in addition to that, we have a retirement benefit, a health care benefit. What a mandated uh, starting pay rate of $15 means for us in the state of New York, where it's just been actually passed, is catastrophic. The reason it's catastrophic is it takes the, the wage rate and drives it up so high so fast, there's no way for us to be able to continue to make money that we can reinvest in the business, reinvest in our people, to be able to achieve the things we want to in each of our neighborhoods. So let me give you the, the, the breakdown on the numbers. So when you take that wage rate, that starting wage rate up 50%, that represents about 30% of our total cost in a restaurant, what we invest in our hourly wages. So it's almost a third of our total cost is in that wage rate. So when you crank it up 50% or more, Somehow, some way, we have to find a way to try to get that back. One thing is to look at trying to raise prices. But we also know people have choices. They don't have to go to White Castle. They can make leftovers last longer at home. Yep. So th- that's one thing that's reality. The other factor is, candidly, uh, you try to manage your hours then to be there to provide the hospitality that we're known for in the restaurant industry. But with that kind of uh, fiat uh, uh, wage rate, it's really difficult to manage and still be able to make a dollar. Average White Castle makes about 1.5% uh, profit uh, on sales for for every dollar in sales, we're getting to keep about a penny and a half. So when you crank up these rates that high, that doesn't turn into be a small profit. It turns out to be a big loss. So that's why it's concerning to us. Indeed. indeed. And one of the questions I always had is if you jack up that minimum wage to $15 and you were paying some people $12 an hour and 14 and moving them up that wage ladder, what do you do then? What do you do when now the minimum is 15? What do you say to the people you'd already given raises to that are at 12 or 13? What happens yeah. to everything, Jamie? 
Lee, that's a great question, and that's the reality that doesn't get discussed a lot in the bumper sticker debate that tends to unfold around these issues. So in reality, let's say you have someone who's a star. They've been with us six years. They love what they're doing at White Castle. Maybe they're at 14 bucks an hour. Are you really going to be able to say that individual that now we're bringing in new people who've never worked a day here, and they're going to start at 15, and you're going to be at 15 also? No, you're going to want to keep that uh, you know, proportional. So that's why when we see these things come through, it's across the board in terms of its impact. It's not not just for that starting pay position. You don't take someone who's a star and, and you know, say, oh, we're going to take you back down to the, the entry level. You want to reward them and treat them with the dignity they deserve for the great job they're doing. So that's part of the, the difficulty and the challenge. And I think in, in years past, maybe there's been a debate about minimum wage, but candidly, whatever has happened legislatively has been pretty close to where the market is already. This is really jumping the shark in terms of uh, uh, cranking it up beyond any kind of connection to economics. The thing that bothers us the most isn't that we make less money. The thing that bothers us the most is it's harder for us to hire people, especially younger people who are looking for that first job. We're going to have a whole lost generation of kids who never have the opportunity to, to uh, get that first job and learn skills they can take with them the rest of their life. You bet. And we do a great segment called First Jobs Fridays where we talk to everybody, you name it, from famous people, we hear from Ashton Kutcher, to ordinary folks about the importance of that first job, what folks learned. And for many people, that first job, that entry-level job, ends up being a profession. You know, Jamie, 450 of your top employees, of the 450 of the top employees at White Castle, again, a privately family-owned business, 444 started out behind the counter in an hourly job. That's astounding, Jamie. Yeah, it's amazing, and I think being able to be part of a family-owned business just really illustrates that there's room to grow, and there's places to go, and, you know, that's true of restaurants everywhere, and we're especially proud of our White Castle team members who decided, we're fortunate, they've decided to make this their calling, and, uh, you know, we love those six who didn't start behind the counter at White Castle. They're great folks, too, so, yep. but, you know, we really got a great track record and tremendous loyalty, and we think that's because we're treating people right, hopefully, and doing the right thing for the long haul. You know, even the government admits, and this is the CBO, and we're never going to use terms like CBO much here on this show, folks, so don't have your eyes roll over. But it's just the Congressional Budget Office. And when they were putting together the projections for minimum wage, they said that this would cost at least a half a million jobs. So you always have to ask yourself the question, Jamie, no job versus a, a slightly lower minimum wage than everybody would necessarily aspire to. Talk about kiosks, because I keep seeing them popping up in the very strangest of places. Restaurants, Jamie, and I'm seeing them at supermarkets, too. Self-checkout, self-service. Talk about that. Well, certainly one of the pressures that, that is there is um, a pressure to quicken the pace of technology and access to technology. You know, keep in mind, we're in the hospitality business when it comes to restaurants. It's also true for retailers. So when you heighten that pressure, you're going to see people make those moves quicker. Um, you know, we're pro-technology at White Castle because we know that that's good for our customers. What we don't want to do is be forced to be in a position where we're not able to staff a restaurant, have those jobs, have those employees there on the front lines who are able to greet a customer, who are able to work uh, the, the different uh, challenges of working the drive through So for us, we're in a people business, and it's always been forward-facing. It's always been about problem-solving, listening, and being responsive. And so, you know, what I think we're going to see 
generally speaking, is a move towards more technology. We don't see that as a bad thing, and we don't threaten that as like, oh, we're going to replace jobs with technology. But the fact of the matter is, when you disrupt the marketplace like these um, by fiat uh, mandatory starting pay measures happen, it really does disrupt the normal course of development, and it makes it tougher for people. Do you know that youth unemployment rate in the state of New York is 21%. That's catastrophic, and it's going to get worse because, candidly, with a forced higher starting pay, those kids aren't getting, those young people aren't going to get the chance for that first job, and that's a shame. It is, and Jahangir, you've got thirty seconds. Just you know, again, you're talking to policymakers and legislators. Tell them what you think of this, and just let's hear from you as we close things out. Well, uh, thank you so much for that. I think uh, that uh, it, it, it's good to have a healthy conversation about the issue. But what I ought to uh, request the policymaker is that uh, the restaurant industry has to have a seat on the table. And every, every voice has to be hard on that issue before they make a decision. Guys, I so appreciate it. Jamie Richardson, Vice President of White Castle and a member of Job Creators Network, and Jahangir Kabir, a District Supervisor at White Castle, were done with the serious stuff. And now to that, that burger, Jamie, how do we take that White Castle burger for people who've never experienced the restaurant and are going into the supermarket? What's the, what's the trick? What's the tip? One minute, Jamie. Well, you got tough decisions, cheeseburger or hamburger. Once you've made that choice, I get, get that six-pack or 16-pack home. And what I would recommend is put a two-pack in the refrigerator, uh, let it thaw a little bit, and then when you pop it in the microwave, open just one end of the package, hit 30 seconds on your microwave, and when it is done, it will be the closest to drive through bliss you can encounter. If you're a purist, you might want to add a pickle. We don't put a pickle on the ones uh, that we put in the microwave because we don't want it to overheat. But uh, you're going to have a, an incredible experience that uh, is as close to the drive through as you could ever imagine, and uh, you'll be craving on in a free world, my friend. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for that. You, that is the answer. That is the answer. I've toyed. I've messed. By the way, I can't replace the pickle. You guys have that thin, sliced, perfect pickle, and there's no such thing in the, in the private sector that replaces it. But, folks, you just heard it. Great public policy discussion, and even more important, an important food discussion. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything on this show, especially love, family, and developing healthy relationships from the start. It's why we have our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment. Such an important thing, and too many people have marriage counselors when the marriage hits the rocks, but they don't have marriage coaches to prevent it, and we talk a lot about that. And divorce lawyers, that's, that's, that's real. I'm a lawyer. That's really, that's when it's over. 
Today, we're talking to a medical doctor in North Carolina who sees a big part of her job as coaching parents. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, who her patients affectionately call Dr. Rose, has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16. Their mission, simple, to provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. But she is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting and culture deprives children of necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, you bet. Tell us a bit about your practice and how it led to this almost from doctor role to doctor slash coaching role. But tell us about your practice first. Well, thank you. Um, So my husband and I started this practice uh, almost 17 years ago. I was pregnant with our daughter, Hannah, and we decided to move to North Carolina from Atlanta after he was done with his military uh, duty. Uh, And so I I had always thought that I wanted to serve the underserved population, so I started a practice, and my husband went into uh, a a more traditional uh, family practice uh, sort of setting. And so when I started uh, just practicing by myself, I realized that the children had numerous problems that weren't necessarily medical. And I started to try to figure out why we were having so many problems that I, you know, I, I wasn't familiar with uh, that seemed to be getting worse, such as um, problems at, at school with their, with their uh, learning and then some behavior disorders. And it seemed uh, every year that passed, some of these uh, problems, disorders, or medical conditions uh, were getting worse. Uh, autism was skyrocketing, ADHD was as well. And I, I, I felt lost uh, helping parents uh, get their children's lives back in check. And what really uh, sort of did it in for me was when I would see the outcomes of these children when they hit 13, 14, and 15, and the children's lives had discombobulated because they were maybe doing drugs, they were involved in gangs, they were quitting school, getting pregnant, and then it was, it, you could see the mom's anguish particularly at seeing, you know, the, their, all of this work and their effort in their parenting uh, pretty much being shot. Uh, and so I, I wanted to put it all together. What, what is it that's happening uh, generation, generationally in, in the United States that's leading for us to have uh, such a, let's say, epidemic of children that, that are failing. So in the end, although you know, you're a medical doctor, you're seeing behavioral stuff that is actually crossing that border and ultimately into that border of not a medical condition, but something that medical doctors are treating with various types of drugs. Uh, but you wanted to get to the root cause, I guess, is what was going on away. That's exactly it. I wanted to get to the cause instead of just treating it. Uh, whether it was behavioral treatment or it was um, a, a just medications that would treat it. I wanted to get to the root problem. If, you know, we all talk about preventive medicine. So I wanted to be able to help the parents before these problems had come up or when they, when they first came up so we could, like our grandparents used to say, nip it in the bud. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. My dad was a superintendent of schools in a school district with about 4,000 kids. And what he saw happening was some of the same things you see. And anyone who's a custodian of a lot of children or sees a lot 
sees a lot of stuff and they see changes. And every culture is different. Every generation is different. But something was going on as he was nearing retirement. One of the things that really disturbed him was the amount of boys particularly uh, prescribed with Ritalin. And he didn't see anything wrong with Ritalin. It worked with some boys. But he saw it as the answer. The, the medicine cabinet was now the answer. And he knew that wasn't right. And as he retired, this is one of the things that really weighed on his heart, doctor. That's a, that, I love the history and, and what you're saying about your dad, and he was able to see that once again sort of a, as a generational uh, sort of problem uh, or, you know, the, the difference in, in it, uh, because that's, that's the same thing I'm seeing because of having practiced medicine for 23 years, where we, we sort of, and, and we get it to the point where we're treating reflexively without really thinking of, okay, what, what is this going to lead down to in 10, 15, 20 years? And really as a pediatrician, as moms and dads, uh, I think that we need to sit back and think about, okay, I know I can fix the problem for right now or, or sort of at least put a Band-Aid, mend the problem, but what is the true root of the problem and what is this treatment going to do in 10 to 15 years? And conversely, what is the treatment that's truly going to uh, optimize the outcome of my child? Yep, and maybe there's no treatment at all. Maybe there's something outside of your ambit uh, as a doctor. Uh, and it sounds like this is where you just stepped into the breach, Dr. Rose. I mean, you just got in there and said, I want to understand, and yes, I'm a medical doctor, and yes, these are the things I get reimbursed for, but there's something else going on here. Talk about the categories and the buckets here, because so often people are stuck in a bucket. My dad was stuck in a bucket. There was only so much he could do as superintendent, bully pulpit, spread the message, but he had no real power in the end to enact change budgetarily. Well, and and you're, you're so right in that we, we uh, try to counsel the wrong person because that's what we have as our, our customer. As a pediatrician and as a principal, you're, you're the, the person that you're, you're truly working with is the child. And so that's what I, I have been able to um, conclude that so many times it's not the child to ne- that needs to be worked on first. It's, it's actually the parent. And that's not saying that, that the parent is uh, un- not reparable or, or that they're, they're uh, terrible parents, but the tools that they're using are probably not the right tools so that many times when I coach the parent and help them through the problem, the child starts to react so much better to that, the voice of the mom and the dad than they would ever to me directly. And I think that that's where medicine has uh, deviated from uh, where you can really help the child. Now, the adult is a different thing, but the child can be best helped through that mom and that dad. And we're, we're trying to, to enact change directly on the child, and it just simply will not work most of the time that way. Yep. And, and let's talk about, before we dig in, and we'll get into the, the, the mechanics of this in the next segment, but let's talk about that underserved community. My dad uh, represented middle cl- low income to middle class, and he saw it cutting across economic strata, uh, Dr. Rose. Um, he saw this everywhere. Uh, more in, the, in lower income families, and particularly the truly needy and poor, because some of these kids simply didn't have a parent, or the parent was absent almost all day long working. I, I, and I see the same thing where it, it is cutting into different uh, social economic strata, but it cuts into them sort of differently uh, because, um, you know, just life affects each one of these children differently. And, and I see the acting out sometimes even more in, in the middle, the, 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 the middle income 
uh, it, it strata than the lower income strata because those those kids um, they they are they're sort of wrapped around with a a, a bubble uh, a bubble cushion. Uh, and so their parents uh, do everything for them. They 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 have changed their lives to a, a, an incredible degree uh, to meet the, what they perceive as the child's needs. Yep. And so what you've done is you're sort of you, when when this child grows up, you you have a disabled child, a child that's not able to think for themselves or do things for themselves. They break apart very easily. These kids are usually not from the the, the lowest social economic uh, line. So true. They're, they're middle class kids. Yep. And and the uh, and my dad always said there's a thin line between the overparented child, the helicopter parents, and the child who's not parented at all. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories and we're talking to we're talking to Dr. Rosemary Fernandez Stein and she's got a remarkable practice uh, with kids and she's also the author of a book Who Needs a Village? It's a mom thing. And we're talking about raising kids and the problems of kids, but most importantly, the parents and are they are they up to speed? Is this generation just not cutting it like other generations before? Or is there something else at play? Could it be technology and other cultural factors? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. We're talking to Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein. And my goodness, she's been working with kids for a very, very long time. Her practice, I I almost call it a mission, uh, serves now 5,000 kids in the North Carolina area. And she's also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing. And we're talking about not kids right here in this segment, but about parents. And in the end, about coaching. And, and Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein is called by her patients, Dr. Rose, and so we'll follow down that path. And Dr. Rose, thanks again for joining us. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Now, so let, let's talk about the parents, and let's talk about, let's not say archetypal types, but give us a couple of specific examples, two or three, because we were talking offline. Look, this isn't all dread. You've seen uh, parents turn things around with some tweaking and with just a little bit of learning. And by the way, we have coaches for everything else, Dr. Rose. We have coaches for g- at the gym. We have coaches for tennis, for golf, for sports. But boy, none of us have like coaches for children. And actually, before all of this evolved uh, or de-evolved to where it is, we did have coaches p- for parents. They were called our parents, right? our mom. And it's become so that we think that the experts know more than our parents, yep. and that's where we really lost the sense of what to do, because moms and dads, specifically moms, you're people builders, and you have a voice for your child that nobody else has. And if you start actually listening to that voice that tells you um, just things that, that you know about your kid that nobody else does, the way he looks at you, the, the way that you know that when he's fibbing, then you'll start to make that that step into uh, being able to be the best parent for your child because you were given that child for a reason. You you are the best voice and, and the best guide for your kid. Uh, but when you talk about different types, yeah, you you do have 
different types, and each child is, is different. There's, there are nuances in each kid, but you have kids that um, will want to run the show, and you know that kid. Mm-hmm. You may have three or four kids, but one of them wants to run the show and be the center of attention. And that kid is like an energy warp. And the more attention you give them, the more attention they want. And I always tell the parent that that monster shouldn't get fed because that makes that monster bigger and bigger. And it's just a funny way of thinking about it because then you realize, ah, I'm feeding the monster. And so I had one of those little guys at the practice, and Mom brought him in when he was three uh, because he was at a home daycare, and he turned that home daycare topsy-turvy because everybody in, in in that that daycare program was following his lead and they were laughing at the daycare worker and they, they started throwing uh, grapes at her and th- everybody knew that it was this little guy that was leading the show well the 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 poor provider called mom and said get the get this little blank from me immediately yep. <laughs> and i won't see him anymore and she brought him over to me like I was just going to, to fix him at the moment. And that's the funniest. Think about that. Right. Three-year-old just disrupted <laughs> mom's life. Yep. And here he is, she is, pulled him out of, of the daycare, brought him over to me and said, you know, I need an emergency behavior appointment. <laughs> and I, we had to stop everything that we were doing. And it wasn't obviously the little kid's crying. He's behaving okay now. And so what am I going to say to the little guy? Behave yourself? Well, obviously, at that point, you know, he was. But who do I really need to give that extra coaching, that extra help uh, and, and support to? Mom. And so it was just a matter of mom finding her mom voice. I just sat her down and said, Mom, even though you think that he's pushing you around, you're actually much stronger than you think. God gave you this kid because you are are supposed to bring him up. I can take him home, but it's not going to get to where he's supposed to get because you are the person who's supposed to put your shoulders up, show him that your yes is yes and your no is no. And so three years later, he's doing well in first grade. He's still a handful. He always will be because there's a potential in this boy. I tell mom that he is going to be a CEO or maybe, a, well, God, God save him, a politician, because <laughs> he, he, he tries to get his way. And as long as mom is holding her ground and she shows, mom, she shows her mom face and her mom demeanor, he knows that he's not going to get by her. And so his life and his dynamics have changed, and he says yes, ma'am, to his mom now. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is one of my favorite shows on TV in the past 10 years was The Dog Whisperer with Caesar. And he would go into a situation, and he didn't spend the time with the dogs. He spent the time with the owners. <laughs> yeah, And I don't like to compare <laughs> do- uh, children to dogs, but sometimes we, we have to understand that we are the stewards of our children. And yep. unless we're acting like the stewards and not like they're the, the, the pet owners and we're, we're the pet, right. <laughs> we're, we're not <laughs> going to get this turned around. You know, you said something interesting about experts and how we're always looking to outsource to other people. And there's a great saying that a friend of mine who's a sort of a Jewish theologian really knows the Talmud inside out. And he said, there's, there's an old joke, when the rabbis became doctors, the Jews got sick. And, and, and this was all about the, the, the thought that it wasn't just the parents and then the extended families, but it was the extended families plus the synagogue. And so there was coaching help everywhere. 
It was all around. And now we're running around solo. Uh, the parents are somewhere else. Uh, you're right. There's, there's no coaching help. And this is, a, this is a big problem. But this is a cultural shift. Talk about that cultural shift, Dr. Rose, and also talk about technology. What role does having Facebook, Pinterest, look, I'm a parent. I've got an 11-year-old, and we have time where she doesn't have that phone in her hand. She is not happy about that. <laughs> we are, um, and we're letting her know we're the parents, and we're also giving her outdoor time. And it's an hour and two at a time with her friends. No phones, just play. Um, we've seen a big difference in her life um, since we've laid down those rules. I love it. And see, a lot of parents are not willing to put their foot down and exert that authority over their children because it feels uncomfortable when you start, and a child is actually startled at that. But to go back on the voice of the expert versus the voice of the mom, never second-guess yourself. If you, if, if, when you feel that mom sense of that, I, I can do this, uh, you know, give give it give it a good whirl. Uh, ask your mom about it. Ask your your favorite aunt about it. So many times we have these kids that at two and three they're not speaking correctly, and we cart them off to a speech therapist yep. who sits there with the kid two and three times a week directly. And there's no mom intervention, and the, and and the speech therapist doesn't necessarily uh, coach the mom on how to teach the kid. And so we we're prolonging this whole speech thing. But what does the mom and the child go back, what lesson do they go back with, is that mom is not enough right. to be able uh, to coach the child through learning disorder, uh, speaking uh, disorders or, or delays. And think before, when, when we didn't pronounce something correctly or we mumbled, our parents would just fix it and tell us, stop mumbling, girl, or stop mumbling, boy, and I can't understand you. You must speak clearly. Uh, or you're lisping, and we say things this way. And they would make us repeat it again and again until we got frustrated, and then we, we figured it out that unless we corrected our speech, our, our mom would continue to correct us. Yep. Well, we've taken that out of the hand of the mom, and I'm not saying that let's do away with speech therapists, but I think the speech therapists are dedicating themselves to the, to the wrong person. It's with the parent and not the child. And if anything, the child can be there so that we can, we can show the mom how we're going to uh, correct the child, but not as the exclusive end-all. Some of these children are actually being pulled from their classroom at three and, their four, and four in Head Start and, and, and Pre-K and being worked on directly. And we don't... This is happening in many different in many different areas of life. Yep. We we need to be coaching moms so that moms become strong. You bet. And then we also have on the other side of this the uh, hyperactive over uh, over uh, interfering parent uh, on that on the other end of the spectrum. If you can talk about a minute about that and what's your advice to those parents who are just in in the grill of every decision the child makes and protecting them at every turn. And it's not too too dissimilar from the other problem because what it comes down to is that you don't trust, uh, in in a in a sense, you don't trust yourself, but you also don't trust life around the child. Right. And so you're you're trying to in you know interact with what life would be, and this many times lends to acrimony between husband and wife because the husband will say, you know, if you just let him. Uh, stew in his own juices, all those lines that grandmas used to say, uh, if you let him lay in his bed because he made it. And as moms, that's what we most want to do is we want to intervene. We want to, we, we, we want to 
speak and work on behalf of our child instead of letting the consequences fall on our child. And yes, it'll be uncomfortable, but believe me, if he doesn't do his homework once and he gets an F, it won't be the end of the world. He may learn his consequences, and then when he comes home with that F, you make sure that there's, there's a consequence to the, getting the F. And the child might say, well, you, you didn't help me. And then, then you deal with that and you say, I'm not here to do your homework for you. You are to do your homework yourself. Figure it out, Missy, or figure it out, young man. You bet. And Dr. Rose, we want to have you on again soon. I want to talk about this and particularly more coaching tips because in the end, this is light. This can be fun. Uh, being a parent is tough sometimes, but boy, if we, if we just... If we lay back in the pocket a little more and get coached a little better, um, we can be so much better. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch this and any of your favorites.